be continuing, like Mike said, in our made news series in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers, and he is addressing a practical matter through the lens of the gospel. Uh, when we see passages like this, first of all, we must be willing to look at the valuable truths and be willing to apply them to our lives. It's easy to say sometimes when we hear sermons like this that I've got this box checked or I'm, I'm already doing this, so he must be preaching to someone else besides me. However, if we're not willing to challenge our own hearts and our motives towards the issues of giving and generosity, then we're going to completely miss what passages like these and others in the New Testament are telling us. So I actually have written in my notes here like a pause for those of you who just realized we're talking about giving to get up and walk out. I would say we would close our eyes, but we're not going to give you that benefit. Now, giving is something that's very personal to us because the reality is there's no doubt that everyone in here who earns a paycheck works very hard for that. You put a lot of effort, time, education, all manner of things go into earning the money that you use to support yourself and to your family. And inevitably, whenever you hear someone talk about giving that hard-earned money or paycheck away, red flags go up, right? Or at least I hope they do. Uh, there should be something within you that wants to be wise with the money or the things that God has provided us with. But we want to look at how the Bible instructs us to give. We want to see the heart and the motives behind that. So let's go ahead and read the text together. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll begin in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also." So let me just kind of set the stage of what's going on here. Um, Paul is writing to the Corinthians about this idea of taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. So remember, uh, just a couple of books earlier in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost is where the church began. On the day of, of Pentecost, the church essentially went from around 11 people to over 3,000 in just one day. And then it was being added to Daily, okay? So among this group of community, this budding church, first of all, there were foreigners. Remember that the uh, apostles then actually had to speak in tongues to be able to communicate the gospel to people. Uh, so there were people from all over the area that were there. There were repented Jews. Uh, these were Jews who were once practicing the Jewish religion, and because they heard the gospel and God changed their heart, they left that behind them and started following after Jesus and the church. 
There were poor people. That was common in those days. There were widows, people who had no one to take care of them. In that type of society, women did not regularly go out and work. And if they did work, it certainly wasn't enough to support a household. So often when their husbands would die, they were left for someone else to take care of them. So think about this. These foreigners who traveled away, most of the time what would happen when they heard the gospel preached, if they were poor and had nothing to go home to, at least they had the gospel being preached here. So they stayed in Jerusalem to hear the gospel preached. They moved their entire lives there. Repented Jews, these were people who had left the Jewish religion, remember? And as is still the custom today, when they would leave and forsake the Jewish religion, what would happen is their families would cut them off. So any inheritance or belongings that they might would have had was all of a sudden gone. Then, of course, there were the poor and widows, as we just talked about. These people needed assistance. So think about it. On the, on the first day of the first church, there was a monumental need that day. So Paul, in reaction to this, started taking up collections as he would travel around and preach in different churches. And he would also, as he would write letters, beg other churches to give to help support these believers. So look in verse 1. Paul addresses these believers in Corinth, and he calls them brothers. Now, this was a term that he uses because they were believers, yes, but because this was a family term. He loved them. He expressed his love for them. Now, if you read through the Corinthian letters, Paul has some rather strong things to say to this church. However, there was no hiding that he really loved these people. And the strong instruction that he was giving them was for their own good. This was also not the first time that he had actually spoken to them about this idea of a collection for the Jerusalem church. If you would read with me in second, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you, so also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So what's going on here is originally, try to get the uh, timeline in your mind, the Corinthians expressed an interest to be able to help this Corinth, the uh, Jerusalem church. So Paul in 1 Corinthians wrote instructions on how they were to do this. Paul did not want to arrive in Corinth and have to wait for them to gather everything together. So he told them to collect this stuff before I get there. So he gives them instructions in 1 Corinthians. He hands this letter. Remember, these were letters that were distributed by hand to the churches, to Titus. Titus takes this letter to the Corinthians, explains how this is supposed to work, and begins the collection for the Jerusalem church. So what we're actually seeing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is more so of a follow-up. He is encouraging them to finish what they once started and to finish well. So let's look at uh, verse 1 again. I want you to see a foundational idea that Paul lays down. Look at what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. Now, this is going to be a key concept here. We have to understand this idea of grace. The Macedonians knew what this meant. Without grace, none of the following that happens that we see the Macedonians follow through with would have ever been possible. 
You see, the Macedonians had experienced grace, and they experienced on a level where it changed their entire life and their life's focus. Their lives were no longer about themselves. It was more about what they could do for Jesus and for others. Even in their meager circumstances, as we'll discuss later, they were more focused on serving others. Only those who have experienced grace can truly be generous. Now, this is an important principle to understand. To truly be generous, as we'll explain what generosity is in just a minute, you have to have experienced grace first. Now, I'm sure what you're thinking in your mind is, there, I know that there are some people who are rich and probably uh, you know, far worse off than we are as far as being sinners, who give a lot more money than we do to other charitable organizations. Uh, they give to whatever, I don't even know any charities, but they give to them, right? And they give these large sums of money, and you're like, wow, I would just like half a percent of that. Um, they are generous. No, not necessarily. Okay, They're trying to calm their consciences. But the reality is they don't know how to truly be generous because they've never experienced grace in the first place. You see, we as believers, because we know what grace is because of what Christ has showed us, we can in return reciprocate that to others and truly be generous. Now let's establish this. God does not need your money. Let me say that again. God does not need your money. Do not get this idea, and it's very common in preaching sometimes, that God is poor and he needs your help. And that's why we ask you to give. That's not it at all. God rather wants your whole heart, even the parts that love your money. So he challenges challenges us to give in that way. Look how Paul teaches the Corinthians about giving and generosity. He uses the example of the Macedonians. So he says there, talking about the grace of God that had been given among the churches of Macedonia. Let's understand who the Macedonians are. The Macedonians were the churches in Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. These people were under severe persecution from the Roman Emperor Claudius. Now, before Rome arrived, these cities were actually pretty well off. They enjoyed a rich trade and a rich natural resources in gold and silver, mining and in lumber, and because of the lumber harvest, shipbuilding. So these were things that were exchanged all the time. And because of that, and because they had the natural resources there, all they had to do was just go get it out of the ground. And because of that, because they had the natural resources, there were all types of businesses surrounding that, such as smelting and wood refining and pitching the inside of tents and whatever it takes to do all that. So these people were pretty well off. However, imagine now as Rome would come in, And as was their custom, as they would take over a city, they began to absorb all of the profit and all of the means of this city through heavy taxation. And what would end up happening, you would leave these cities as shadows of once booming economies. This is what the the churches in Macedonia were like. We could probably draw some modern day comparisons to a Detroit or maybe even Kinston. It's true you've been there. Let's look at verse 2. You can see a very odd paradox. Now, when we read through this verse, I hope there was some, some things that were kind of blinking in your mind, like, you know, that really doesn't make sense. This is very strange. And they should have came up in verse 2. Verse 2 says, for in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So we're going to take this line by line. First of all, it says they were in severe test of affliction. 
These people were literally being crushed by life. There was no relief in sight. Rome had come in and established their dominance, and everything about life from that point forward was difficult and hard, and there was no relief. As if the taxation and the dominance from Rome wasn't bad enough, there was the hating, still-practicing Jews that were around. So think about it this way. You're trying to do the best you can to scrape by and to earn a living, and you have this dominant, pre-established church that you've left that doesn't like you, and they don't like you a lot. So they're not going to help you get jobs. They're not going to help you cut your grass. They're not going to make life easy for you at all. They're not going to give and have any type of community for you at all. Oftentimes, they would even inform to the Romans on the Christians that were there just to make their lives more difficult. These people were in a severe test of affliction. And then, next, they had an abundance of joy. The idea is that their joy was overflowing and could not be contained when it came to this idea of being generous towards the Jerusalem church. Now, right off the bat, that's got to be, that's weird, right? It doesn't make sense. If they're in severe affliction, how is it that they can be so joyous and so happy about giving from what they really don't even have? Let me illustrate it this way. I love being on time almost to a fault. And when I say being on time, I mean 10 minutes early everywhere we go. I love being on time. My wife does not enjoy being on time at all. She does not share the same sentiment. So what happens is when it's time for us to go somewhere, I will rush around the house getting everyone dressed and trying to somehow hurry everyone out the door so that we can be on time and I can feel good about myself. But inevitably what happens is in all my rushing and fussing, I will forget something. And I will remember this something 10 minutes down the road. So what happens is we have to turn around and go all the way back home and forget and get what I forgot. And then it makes us even later than we were to begin with. Now, this is very frustrating to me. This causes affliction in my life. However, nothing brings more joy to my wife than seeing me be the source of my own chaos. This is ride in the car silent time. No one's talking. It's just quiet, just the hum of the road. But I can glance out of the side of my eye and try to see my wife trying to hide her laughter because I have made us later than we were to begin with. I say this to say abundant joy is not the natural reaction to severe affliction. It reminds me of something me and my wife were talking about the other day and some discipleship that she's been doing. Uh, when pressure is applied to something, what's inside will come out, right? Does that make sense with everybody? Volcanoes, you squeeze a bottle of water, what's inside comes out. It's the same way with us. When pressure is applied, what's inside will come out. Oftentimes when we are pressured, bad things and bad actions happen, right? And we blame it on the circumstances. Oh, I was rushed or this was happening. But the reality is the pressure is not what causes those poor actions, it's what's on the inside, the attitude of the heart. And you see for the Macedonians, when they were pressured, when they were squeezed, what came out was an abundant joy. Look next at the next phrase. They were in extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. Now, the idea of extreme poverty is pretty much all but lost on us as Americans. We have no idea what it really means to be poor or to not have anything. 
for, when I say poor, I'm not talking about still using the iPhone 4 poor. I'm talking about still has a beeper and a few dimes poor. I mean, these people had nothing. They were bottomlessly poor. They were depending on God for everything they had. And look how it resulted. It overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, here's the paradox here, right? This equation is not adding up. How does severe affliction and extreme poverty equal abundant joy and a wealth of generosity? What's missing here? How does this make sense? How do people who are in such bad shape, who are enduring such difficult situations, be so joyous and so giving in such tough times? The missing factor here is grace. Paul talked about it in verse 1. You see, the Macedonians understood what it meant to experience grace. They knew that the sacrifices they made far outweighed any amount of gold or silver that they could pass along to others. Their giving was motivated by grace. Understand, in the Bible, there's no list or no table that says, if you make this amount, you should be giving this amount. Or if you make that amount, you should be giving that amount. It doesn't exist. We are rather to reciprocate the grace that we have been shown. We are to look at how the Father has blessed us by giving, laying down his life for us and rescuing our souls and how he has blessed us financially and what he has given us, and we are to give accordingly. Now, I know you're saying, well, that's impossible. That's an unmatchable gift. How can I ever give in a way that's going to match him rescuing my soul? And the answer is you can't. You can't. If you're trying to somehow equal the score between you and God by what you give, you'll never do it. The reality is it's not about what you give. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart that you have with it. Let's look next at the extent of the Macedonians' giving. It says here in verse 4, excuse me, verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. They gave according to their means. No matter how little or how much they have, they gave accordingly. You see, the beauty of this is that no one was excluded from the opportunity to be able to support the church in Jerusalem. No one was excluded. You see, these people were motivated by grace. They loved the brothers in Christ that were suffering in Jerusalem, and they wanted to be able to give to help them. And it didn't matter how much they had. They were all willing to give. Now, when we look at this and compare it to ourselves, let's not kid ourselves. We live in one of the most prosperous nations of all time, and we are without excuse. God has blessed us all. We must look at our means, look at the way that God has blessed us, what he has given us, and be willing to give accordingly. Now, that's just the first half of the verse. Let's look at the second half. The second half takes that previous principle of giving according to your means and builds on top of it. It says in verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Paul personally testified. He was there. He saw it. He knew that the way they give was more than they were able to do. They gave beyond their means. They understood how to give and were willing to raise the bar on top of that. You see, the way they gave required them. It put them in the position where they had to trust God. Now, what does that look like today? How do we put ourselves in a position to where we have to trust God by the way we give? 
Are we supposed to uh, take every credit card offer that comes in our mailbox and sign up for it and cash it out and pass that check along to integrity? No. Okay? And if anybody ever tells you to do that, run away. That's not what we want you to do. We would rather you look at the way God has blessed you and decide how it is that you can give and then give in a way that causes you to trust him. A way that's going to say, okay, Lord, I know that this is what you've done for me and I'm going to trust you to take care of me no matter what. We're not asking anyone to be foolish. We're rather asking you to give according to grace. Your giving should be motivated by grace. Let's look together in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read verses 25 and 26. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Do you see the principle here? It doesn't matter what we decide to do in life. As we step out in faith and we live life and we trust God and we give accordingly, God is going to take care of us. If he is willing to take care of birds, who cares about them, right? God does. If he's willing to feed them, then he is certainly going to take care of those whom he died for. He loves us and he loves us like a father. And therefore, he's not going to allow his children to go without. That doesn't mean you're going to have a Bentley parked in your yard when you get home with a speedboat hooked up to it, all right? You see, we have to separate the American idea of need away from what true need really is. The American idea is that we need a nice house, nice cars, and that we need nice clothes and nice phones and everything like that. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with those. But the reality is that is not our motivating goal. That is not the end that we're trying to live our life towards Rather, we are trying to live lives that are leveraged for the sake of the gospel. Remember, everything that God has given you, everything that you have and everything that you are, was given to you for the purpose of the gospel, for the, for the ability for you to share the good news of Jesus and how great a Savior he is with other people. And if we're hoarding these things to ourselves and we're not doing it, then we're wasting the gifts that God has given us. If we don't give in a way that causes us to trust God, what we're really saying is that he is not able or good enough to care for those he promised he would. Now, I know that's a strong statement, right? Because inevitably all of you are thinking about, well, I give this much, that's enough, right? But if we don't give in a way that trusts God, we're really saying some things about what we really think about God. But trust me, (laughs) I'm in the same boat as y'all, right? I know what it means to have to give away my paycheck and to have to kind of like divide that thing up between all the bills that it has to go to, and then you're like, well, where's the rest of it? What are we supposed to do for this week? It can be tough. Life's not easy. However, one thing we say here in integrity often is what we think about God is the most important thing about us. And let us be reminded that the way we give can be a direct indicator of what we really think about God. It can speak volumes as to how we really think about him. Now, we don't post, like, the giving statements all, you know, on the big screens up here so everybody can say, oh, this is how so-and-so thinks about God. You know, that's not necessary. You know what you give. You know how God has blessed you. And God is going to speak to your own heart. God is going to challenge you to give in a way to trust him. And we have to follow through with that. Notice the, the phrase at the end of verse 3. It says, they gave of their own accord. 
There was no giving police in Macedonia that were kicking down doors and saying, let me see your pay stub. It wasn't necessary. There was also no manipulation involved. By the way, be aware of emotional giving. Be aware of giving that is based on your emotions. What I mean by that is if you find yourself flipping through the channels and you land on TBN and you see someone with way too much hair and way too much makeup telling you that you need to give money to their ministry so that they can have private jets to fly around so they can talk directly to God, don't. These people are wolves. Watch out for them. But they prey on weak-minded and weak theology people who don't understand what it means, and they give emotionally. Be careful. Next, let's briefly discuss this idea of the tithe. Now, we do not have time to dig all the way through this because it would take hours, and I would be exhausted, and I don't want to do that. So we're not going to go all the way through the tithe. However, let's just understand some basic concepts about tithing. If you were raised here in the South or you've been to church here at all, you've probably heard this idea that you're supposed to give 10% of your income to the church. Now, oftentimes when this is being preached, I don't think that these people are being disingenuous. Rather, they're just preaching what they've always heard. They're not out to trick anyone, but they think this is right. However, 10% is actually an old covenant idea. This really doesn't apply to the New Testament church In fact, it was never just 10%. Understand that. If you're really locked in with tithing and you're like, this is definitely the right thing to do, 10% wasn't it. It was a Levitical tithe, which was 10%. Then there was the tithe for the festival, which was an additional 10%. Then you had to tithe 10% every three years for the poor. So it really ended up being closer to about 23.5%. Then some. All right? Now, you don't hear that preached very much because that's a lot. But understand, these people were in a theocracy. This was a government ruled by God. So their way of paying taxes to support the way the government system works was by their giving. It was different. It just doesn't apply anymore. Then you have to answer questions like, should I be tithing off the gross or should I be tithing off the net? Look, just don't waste your time, right? This doesn't apply anymore. This is not what we are to be doing. I understand that there's probably people in here, that's the way you're giving. And I am certainly not trying to knock you down. But understand, our giving is to be motivated by grace. The Macedonians, even as close as they were to the church and to the Jewish idea of giving, were not concerned about these concepts because their generosity was motivated by grace. Look at their passion about how they wanted to give, how the Macedonians wanted to give in verse 4. It says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They unexpectedly begged Paul to want to give to these saints who were suffering. Now, I don't know about you, but when times get tight in my house, my last response is usually, let's be more generous. I'm just going to be honest with you, right? Normally, I'm like trying to sneak extra napkins home from McDonald's and grab ketchup packets so we can somehow pinch some pennies to make it to the end of the week. That's our normal response to tight times, right? It is hard for us to relinquish control that we have financially on our own lives and to trust God for our needs because we are so absorbed in our own pride. You see, this challenge of giving in a way that causes us to trust God can often plainly expose the pride that we have within ourselves. As the pressures of life build and the pressures of finances build and they squeeze us, 
What really comes out? Is it generosity? Or do we see ourselves somehow clinging closer and closer to our checkbooks? Sometimes as uh, believers, we can be very cavalier about this idea of God is sovereign, right? We trust him, so we do things that are a little more risky because we know that he's going to take care of us. When I think about this, I think about flying in airplanes. Now, let me say this. I am not afraid to fly in airplanes. But when I get in airplanes, I am afraid to fly in airplanes. We pay good money to people to get in giant metal tubes with combustible fuel underneath and fly over bottomless oceans with man-eating animals in it. And then we ask for blankets and pillows so we can take naps while we're doing it. And we do this because we know that God is sovereign, right? We are willing to relinquish control that if God wants this plane to fail, then it will. But when it comes to giving a little bit more money at the end of every month, because we want to be generous and we want to show that we trust him, all of a sudden we're not so quick to trust God's sovereignty. It can be difficult for us to relinquish our control. Now, I'm not saying this to be accusatory. I am with you on this. I'm identifying simply what God has challenged my heart with. It is hard for us to let go and trust God. It is not easy for us. However, the Macedonians were at this stage in life were probably trusting God for each meal that they had coming. And because of that, because they had to trust God so much every day, when it came time to give, it was not a big deal. We must be willing to mirror this model. This is a reflection of the heart and the motives that the Macedonians had. They were seeking ways to reciprocate grace that they had experienced, especially when it came to helping the church, especially when it came to helping these suffering saints in Jerusalem. I think it's no coincidence that these people who were suffering were willing to so quickly come to the aid to others who were suffering. That is often the case. You see, those who have suffered before are a lot more likely to come to the aid of those who are currently suffering. I'm reminded of just over a year ago, if you've been coming to Integrity for that long, you may remember um, our oldest son, Josiah, was suddenly hospitalized and uh, almost died, essentially. And during that time, we were in Washington, D.C., uh, away from everyone we knew except for my brother. We experienced grace from Integrity Church and from believers all over, really. But we experienced wave after wave of grace from those who knew what grace was. Whether it was some type of financial support or whether it was by food or meals or cards, people came to help. People came to visit us, to be with us, just to sit around with us and to pray with us. Some even broke into our home and painted and cleaned and did yard work. It was very clear to us during that time, while things were difficult and we didn't know what was going to happen next, one thing we did know is that there was a group of people back home who were willing to minister to us and that they had experienced grace before. And it was obvious by the way they were showing grace to us. This is the same thing that was going on with the Macedonian church. These people knew what it meant to suffer, but they also knew what it meant to experience the grace of Christ, and they were willing to share it with other people. Paul speaks here to the Macedonians' joyous giving as unexpected. He did not expect this. There was a mountain of adversity stacked against them, but yet they still came. They were willing and joyous and sacrificial. Let us be reminded that God is no poor beggar dressed in rags asking for change. Rather, he is a mighty sovereign God who demands our total dependence on him. So he teaches us to give in a way that causes us to trust him.
But this is nothing new, right? We preach to trust God here all the time. We tell God to, we say, you know, you need to trust God to grow your faith. You need to trust God to help your marriage relationship. You need to trust God as you get through school. We say that all the time. But it's very easy for us somehow to segregate this idea of giving when we talk about trusting God. So let me ask us this question. Do we consider giving as a way that God matures us? Have we thought about that? Look what Paul says in verse 7. He says, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You see what's going on, and even back in verse 6, Paul has sent Titus with this letter of 1 Corinthians, and they have began this giving like we talked about earlier. Now he's commanding them to excel, to finish strong, to do well. He uses the idea of grace like bookends. Remember, he talked about grace in the first verse. We talked about that was going to be a key concept to be able to understand what we're talking about today. If we're going to give in a way that's going to show that we trust God, we have to understand and have experienced grace and what it does for us. So, do we consider giving as a way that God matures us? Let me ask us this question. Have we ever asked God to increase our willingness to give? Have we ever asked that? I know I've prayed prayers like, God, it's going to be tight this week. I know you can read this bank statement, right? It's going to be tough. I need help. We're always asking God for more. But when was the last time we were really willing to say, God, you've blessed me. Help me to give accordingly. It's just not a natural reaction for us. We want to cling tightly. How about this? Do we challenge others in our discipleship meetings that we have all the time? When was the last time that giving and generosity came up? When was the last time we challenged others, hey, are you willing to give in a way that trusts God? Our giving must be dripping with grace. That's the focal point of the message today. God is infinitely more concerned about the heart that you give with than the amount that you actually give. Let us be encouraged by the example that the Macedonians set. The same reason Paul told the Corinthians about the Macedonians was to encourage them to continue to give and to finish well. Let us also take an encouragement from the Macedonians to be generous people that gives in a way that glorifies God. How can we give in ways that glorify God? He wants us to give in response to the grace we have experienced. He wants us to give no matter the difficulty of our situation. And that's real life, right? Everyone in here goes through tough times. I understand that. I am with you. Life can be tough and be challenging. God still wants us to give and trust him. He wants us to give joyously. Now, that's important, right? I'm not on the counting team, but I imagine you can see these checks where people have, you know, like signed it really difficult because they're upset about having to hand that over. God's not interested in that. God wants us to give with a sense of joy. He wants us to give according to how he has given to us. He wants us to give sacrificially, ways that cause us to trust him. He wants us to give uncoerced. He doesn't want someone to have to manipulate you into giving. He wants you to have the right heart, the right motives. He wants us to mature in our giving. He wants us to continue to give, to continue to excel, to continue to grow. I'm not talking about necessarily that your giving amount has to increase every week or something like that. I think you should consider 
at some point in your life, you should, if you're a college student and you're giving this amount, you shouldn't be 45 and giving the same amount, right? You should mature at some point through there. These are simple steps of discipleship. We want to grow in the way that we love Christ, and this is one of the ways we can do it. This is a very practical matter talking about giving and generosity, but we have to be willing to apply these truths to our life. Let's pray together.